Please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And let's start today's service, if we may, in verse 1, please. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God, bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and the deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. So this chapter will deal with the touchy subject of tithing and giving. And just for the record, tithing for today is obsolete. Tithing back in the Old Testament was Israel's national tax system. You would tithe for the upkeep of the temple. You would tithe for the salaries of the priests. And there were thousands of priests that would be working at the temple and you would be giving at least 10%. The Mormons are very keen to have their members tithe. The Roman Catholics are very keen to have their members tithe. And the Seventh-day Adventists are also very keen to have their members tithe. But for today, we have no temple as such. For today, we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. And for today, we have no priest system, because we are a royal priesthood. Verse 1 again. Moreover, brethren, addressed to the elders of this church in Corinth, being modern-day Greece, of course, we do you to wit, a legal technical term, which simply means, that is to say, of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Grace always means grace, like God's righteousness at Christ's expense, or as most evangelicals uh, suggest, God's riches at Christ's expense, but I like to change that to God's righteousness, like imputation at Christ's expense. Bespoed on the church as plural of Macedonia, like Philippi, like Berea, Thessalonica, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and the deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. So you've got at least three churches in the area of Greece, in fact, if you were to go to Greece today, you wouldn't find many churches at all. Greece is a washed-up, fifth-rate power, very much uh, lamenting over its past glories. But in the first century, you had many Gentile churches spread all over the Roman Empire, and they were somewhat more wealthier than their Jewish counterparts. But I don't think it's fair to say there were any rich churches as such in the first century, and I'll explain that more in a moment. But here, verse 1 deals with the churches, like I say, in Macedonia, and they are suffering deep poverty, and yet the abundance of their joy and the riches of their liberality, meaning generosity, a meaning uh, sincerity. It's always good to give if you can, let's never lose sight of that. There's a statement from the book of Acts where Christ said it's always Better to give than to receive. And there's much truth in that. It always feels good to give something. I know from my perspective, when I first got saved, I was giving donations to different ministries for a period of time, and it felt good to do so. I felt I was contributing something to such ministries. But I'll come back and discuss that further shortly. I look at verse 3, please. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty, that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Entreaty, meaning to beg, for to their power, meaning their authority, I bear a record, I was aware of what was taking place, yea, 
and beyond their power, they're willing of themselves. So you've got a poor church, uh, verse 2, or a group of poor churches. Again, Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, and yet, although they are poor, like very poor, verse 2, they want to give, they want to give uh, from verse 3 and 4, in reference to receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. So what you've got, in essence, are two groups of churches. You've got a group of Gentile churches, like I say, in the Roman Empire, and they are more well-to-do, shall we say, than perhaps their Jewish counterparts. The Jewish counterparts were very poor. If you were a Jew in the first century that believed in Jesus, there was every chance you'd be ostracized and just cut off. There was a story of a guy who got saved, and he was part of a Jewish family outside of New York, a very well-to-do Jewish family, and he found uh, the Messiah. He found Jesus Christ, and he was saved. And one day he walked to his parents' house. I think he got saved at some missionary somewhere, and it was around Christmas time, so very cold. In fact, the weather in New York is very similar to the weather in Britain. And he walked to his parents' mansion, and he arrived 10 o'clock at night, half past 10, knocking on the door for five or six minutes. Nobody was opening the door. And eventually, his mother opened the upstairs window, looked down, and she said, oh, it's you. And he said, Mother, I've got great news for you. I've just found our, uh, our Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach. I found Jesus Christ. He's our Messiah. I believed on him. And she said, uh, okay, that's very interesting. And he was waiting for her to come down and open the front door. And she never came down. And she said to him, well, we had a son, but he's now dead. And he realized straight away that word had got back to his parents, that he was saved. And they decided to just cut him off, like excommunicate him. And this guy, Christmas time, like I say, in his mid-twenties, realized that he'd lost everything. His parents didn't want to know him. He'd lost his inheritance. And uh, he had to literally abandon everything. And he turned around, walked out of his parents' uh, estate, and he had no money. And he had to jump on a train and travel from one state in America to another state and start all over again. He paid a huge price. And on the train from A to B, he made the statement that that was the best night's sleep he ever had. He lost his parents. He lost his money. He lost his circle of friends. They wouldn't believe on Jesus Christ. Most Jews hate Jesus Christ. Most Jews have no interest in Jesus Christ. And of course, it's fair to say that most Jews don't really know much about Jesus Christ as well. But the rabbis know all about Jesus Christ. The leaders know all about Jesus Christ. And they have conspired to just rub him out of history, just to eradicate him from history. So for a first century Jew to get saved, it was a big deal. Because the chances were that they would be cut off, persona non grata, they would be just discarded. And on top of that, they would lose their inheritance. Like Muslims that come to faith in Christ. If you speak to a Muslim that has been born in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait or Bahrain, and they get saved, they know the risks of broadcasting their faith. And that's why many of them don't broadcast the fact that they are saved. Because if they do... They will be detained, tortured, and sometimes killed. There is a term for that, and the term for that is honor killing. That's more in reference to uh, female Muslims that want to marry non-Muslims, but that can also be in reference to Muslims, male and female, that leave Islam, like in the Middle East. And that's called the sin of apostasy. 
and that will result in Muslims being executed. There was also a story of a well-to-do Sikh in India that got saved, and he went to tell his parents that he was saved, and they were just horrified, and they grabbed him, put him into the basement. He was held there for two to three weeks. He was deprived of food. He was deprived of water. He was whipped. He was treated very badly. And he knew that he had to escape because if he didn't, they would just kill him. And during his detention at his own property, at the mercy of his parents, family members would arrive, so-called friends of the family, and they too would uh, spit on him, slap him about, treat him with contempt, and beat him, make fun of uh, Christianity, make fun of Jesus Christ. And they said to him that, unless you renounce your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll be executed. And this Hindu man, I think it was a Hindu, either Hindu or Sikh, I can't quite recall. And Hindus, Muslims and Sikhs are pretty much dominating India and Pakistan. And those three groups are all uh, extreme, if you will. They have extremists in those groups. Yes, of course, there are moderates found in such groups, but there are enough extremists found in those three groups to cause a civil war, just like that, in India or Pakistan And that's why the governments have to keep a lid, if you will, on such people. But this guy, I think he was a Hindu actually, was able to escape. And he knew that he couldn't stay in India because he was very well known. And therefore he had to get out of India. And I think he arrived in Sweden, of all places, where he uh, claimed asylum. That's the price, you see, that people pay when they come to faith in Jesus Christ. So for the first century, it wasn't much different. For the first century Jew that came to faith in Jesus, they knew they would pay a huge price. That's why the churches in Jerusalem were so poor. If you were a first century Jew, there was every chance that you had paid a huge price to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So that's what is going on here. You've got a great level of poverty in the Jewish branch the jewish wing of the church if you will and paul the apostle to the gentiles wants the gentile churches to give because of the sufferings that the jews were experiencing like great poverty like at the point of even starving to death praying us first for with much entreaty that we would receive the gift like an offering and take upon us a fellowship of the ministering to the saints Feeding back also to chapter 1, chapter 2, concerning suffering for the Lord, being able to relate to other people's sufferings for the Lord. Look at verse 5, please. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord, and unto us by the will of God. If you listen to a typical evangelist, they will say, give your heart to the Lord, give your life to the Lord. I'm not against that. I understand what they're trying to say. But that won't necessarily save you. You're saved by believing. You're saved by receiving. But once you are saved, then you should give your heart to the Lord. You should give your life to the Lord. And that's what I think we are reading about here. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord. And unto us by the will of God, they would exceed Paul's expectation. Verse 6. Insomuch that we desire Titus that... As he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 speaks about meeting every Sunday like we are doing today. And at the end of a typical 
first century Lord's Day service, there would be a collection which would have uh, been prepared throughout the week. And that collection was also for the poor Jewish brethren in Israel because they were suffering terribly. On top of that, there's every reason to believe that if a Jew had come to faith in Jesus in the first century, they couldn't get work. Because if you think of people like uh, Caiaphas or Ananias or other well-to-do Jewish aristocrats in the first century, not only were they high priests, not only were they uh, very well-to-do, shall we say, in ecclesiastical circles, but they also owned a lot of land in and around Jerusalem. And if you were a Jew working for such people and they said, hey, by the way, I now believe that Jesus Christ is a Messiah, you were fired. I mean, it was such a heavy price to pay to become a Christian, to become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't as severe for the Gentiles, on the other hand, that came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were mainly pagans before they found Christ, and therefore they weren't in the same situation. So I think, one more time, that's what we are reading about this morning. And I'll say this also, that chapter 8 and chapter 9 are probably the hardest chapters thus far in Second Corinthians, if not the entire New Testament. Six again, insomuch that we desired Titus. I looked at one commentary this week, and the writer suggested that Titus and Dr. Luke were blood brothers. Perhaps, I don't know. I know that most scholars believe that Dr. Luke was a Gentile who got saved later. In fact, this writer suggested that the man found in Acts chapter 10, the man in Macedonia, modern-day Greece, and uh, that man was the uh, guy that uh, appeared to Paul in a dream. And this writer suggested that that man from Acts chapter 10 was Dr. Luke. I don't know. I've always believed that Dr. Luke was one of the 70. That's my own private view. I don't teach that as doctrine, just my own hypothesis, I suppose. But... I know that most scholars believe that Dr. Luke was a Gentile, but for my own research, my own feeling, I don't know if that's the case. Uh, I like to stick with the fact that he could have been a Jew, could have been one of the 70, but of course would become uh, Paul's traveling companion and would write Luke's Gospel and also the Book of Acts. But here Titus has once again reappeared on the scene and the latter part of verse 6, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. It's also fair to say that uh, the Corinthians had been uh, tossed to and fro. And for some of them, they thought that perhaps Paul was an imposter. Perhaps Paul was a huckster. Perhaps Paul was only in it for the money. And perhaps they thought that the money that was collected, First Corinthians chapter 16, and also here, Second Corinthians chapter 8, was perhaps going to go back to Paul. Perhaps he was going to keep the money for himself, which of course was completely incorrect. But that's a damage that uh, evil tongues can do. One moment such people are praising the Lord, the next moment they are cutting the Lord's people down. And here Titus wants to encourage the Corinthians not to go back on their word. They've been very generous the last time around, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and they had promised to be generous again. One more time in reference to those poor Jews in Jerusalem and the surrounding districts. Look at verse 7, please. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge, and in all diligence, 
and in love to us see that ye abound in this grace also. Faith, utterance, knowledge, diligence, and love. You've got at least six characteristics there of what the Apostle Paul would expect from a first century Gentile church. And it's quite intriguing to me that on the one hand he would condemn them concerning one more time the incest incident concerning suing each other in courts not controlling the abuse of tongues and the schisms so and so forth and yet here he is commending them due to their faith their utterance their knowledge their diligence and their love to us see that you abound in this grace also so grace will save your soul and once you are saved grace will allow you to do more for the lord and like i say it is always good to give it feels good to give and if you can give you should give but at the same time tithing like a mandatory 10 percent, is not for today and yet unfortunately most ministries most churches would have you believe that it is for today in fact i spent the last few days looking at some of my commentaries and i'm ashamed to say I'm ashamed to say that most of those commentaries are peddling the tithing lie. They are peddling the tithing lie for today. Because they are mainly one-man ministers, and they are in church systems, and they know perfectly well that they couldn't exist without that mandatory tithe. But for the first century, it was very different, because for the first century, collections were mainly for widows, orphans, sick people, and elderly people. They weren't for pastors there was no one-man pastor in the early church the one-man pastor didn't really come along until the second century and the gnostics the heretics that john the apostle uh, john the apostle would clash with they were also very much into the one-man paid ministry so if you want to offer that as being for today then you have to i would suggest to go against scripture and this also goes back to the reformation the Reformation was all very well. In fact, this year is the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's uh, 95 uh, system, his, his 95 point thesis. And Luther, I believe, was saved. Very uh, carnal at times, shall we say. Some of his language was pretty rough. And yes, it was anti Semitic, picturing his old nature. But Luther wasn't of the opinion that the Catholic Church needed to be destroyed. He wanted to reform it from within. And he too would also hold to tithing. Because he knew that if he didn't tithe, he'd be out of a job. If he didn't tithe, his church and Calvin's church and Zwingli's church and all the other churches would collapse. It's the same today. There was a guy called uh, Paul Marchinkus and he said this. He said the church concerning the Roman Catholic church cannot survive on Hail Mary's alone. And of course it was a tongue-in-cheek statement, but he was right. And he knew that his church worth billions, I mean talk about excessive wealth, needed even more money and it was his job to raise billions of dollars for the continual upkeep of the vatican and incidentally the vatican had their own bank how about that their own bank and the mafia are quite happy to launder their own money through the vatican bank and yet most catholics are oblivious and also indifferent to such an unholy alliance but we are reading second corinthians chapter 8 and as always, we are trying to approach this to the minds of a first century saved Gentile, a first century saved Jew. 
how would they have received such a message? Unfortunately, we are 2,000 years on, or nearly 2,000 years on, and unfortunately, we are quite cynical, sometimes maybe too cynical, but at the same time, we're not fools. We know that churches today are very different to churches back in the Old Testament, or back in the New Testament, I should say. If you want, the Old Testament is a spiritual picture of the church in the New Testament, but for the New Testament, you've got these churches, mainly Gentile, being commended to give to their Jewish brethren, and they would do so. But also be mindful of this, that the apostles were still around. They were overseeing what was going on, and that, I think, gave extra confidence to those churches in Berea, Thessalonica, Philippi, and elsewhere. Today, we have no apostles. We have no prophets today. We have churches within churches. We have ministries within ministries. And of course, every ministry is autonomous. Every church is autonomous. And that's why if you are part of a church or a ministry, you know that that church or that ministry doesn't have to be accountable to another church or another ministry. That's a blessing that Christ has given the body of Christ. We are only accountable to him. And yes, of course, that has also been abused over the years. But let's keep reading on, please. Look at verse 8, if you will. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. So Paul could have done this. He could have said, well, I'm going to order you all to tithe 10%, like the Jews would do back in the Old Testament. But that's not what he's going to do, because we now live under grace. I can't stress how blessed we are. I mean, had we all been born, had we all been living back in the Old Testament times, life would have been very difficult. I mean, if you think about uh, Acts chapter 15, Peter makes the case that it was a great burden to keep the law. I think it's Solomon who says there isn't a just man on the face of the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if you think of trying to keep the law, it's impossible. You can't even keep your New Year's resolutions. You try and keep 600 plus commandments, like sins of omission, like sins of commission. You can't do it. Only Christ would keep the law to the letter, because, of course, he is the God-man. So Paul knows how difficult it was to keep the law. He couldn't keep the law. Sure, he was a decent man. He was an upright man, but he wasn't a perfect man. I mean, look at Job at the end of uh, Job 38, 39, going into chapter 42. I think there's 42 chapters from memory, picturing 42 months of the Great Tribulation. And Job is repenting. Job is on his face. The same would be true of other greats from the Old Testament. I speak not by commandment. That's good news. But by occasion of the forwardness of others. And to prove the sincerity of your love. There's a word again. Sincerity. Cross-reference it back to verse 1. Liberality. Generosity. Sincerity of your love. You want to give from your own heart. You want to give because you can give. You don't want to be... Uh, deceived into giving you don't want to be condemned for not giving you don't want to give hoping to receive something from other people and yet most churches like i say are very much into this tithing system but let's keep reading on please verse 9 for you know the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich yet for your sakes he became poor 
that ye through his poverty might be rich. That verse gets twisted and mangled by almost every word of faith church, every charismatic church, every Pentecostal church on the face of the earth. And they believe that the more you give, the more the Lord will give you, like you'll become more prosperous. But if you read the New Testament very carefully, you can't help but see poverty. You can't help but see Paul treated very badly by his audience, if you will, and having to be uh, rushed out of one particular town to the safety of another. There was no picture in the first century of being hugely wealthy. Jesus Christ had nothing. That's what I think Paul wants to really drive home. You will become rich in a spiritual sense. It says over in uh, the Gospel of Mark that you will gain brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, meaning spiritual brothers, spiritual sisters, spiritual mothers, spiritual fathers, and also lands are thrown in there. And sometimes you may receive a property as a gift from the Lord, or you may receive a car, or you may receive uh, even a dog. I remember hearing a story of one particular chap who was given a car and a dog as a gift by those that thought very highly of him. And he was very fond of that dog, and he was very fond of that car. And of course the car eventually packed up and had to be uh, sold for scrap, and the dog eventually became sick and would die. But the idea of giving a lot to receive more back from the Lord is problematic. The more you give, yes, it's good to give, like I say, but don't give in order to keep up with the Joneses or to keep up with the Smiths. Give because you can give. And if you do give, don't broadcast how much you are giving. If you think of the uh, lady putting in her two mites into uh, the temple treasury, Mark 12, verses 41 to 44, she gave all that she had. Didn't broadcast it, and Jesus saw it, and he would commend her for it. So, I think if you want to give something, do so. Don't broadcast how much you give, and if you do, you know, and if you do decide to give something, give within your remit. Don't overdo it. Don't kill it. So I'm going to stop it there. We've looked at nine verses, and like I say, this is a slightly tricky chapter to approach because tithing is a touchy subject. And yet churches do cost money to run. Ministries do cost money to run. But tithing as such, the one-man minister as such, is not found in the New Testament. Contrast that back to the Old Testament. Yes, there were priests. Yes, there, were, there was a temple. There were animal sacrifices. And that uh, took time and money. And also, like I say, it was also part of Israel's national tax system. Also be mindful of that. In the first century, there was no welfare system. There was no social security. It was down to the churches to take care of the widows, to take care of orphans, to take care of the sick and the elderly. And uh, Paul would tell you from First Timothy, chapter 5, I think it is, that if you don't provide for your own, you're worse than infidel. And he would also be very uh, critical of those that could give and wouldn't want to give. One final uh, thought to share with you concerning the poverty in Jerusalem. And I looked at one uh, commentary this past week, and the author suggested this, that because there was a lot of problems in Jerusalem, that was down primarily to Paul's behavior 
Acts chapter 9. And the author suggested that Paul never really got over the guilt, uh, making women widows and children orphans or fatherless. Interesting statements. He could be right. Yes, Paul was a murderer. Paul would make people blaspheme the Lord. Paul would make people deny the Lord. And he was just like a zealot going around trying to kill people. And that could explain why, or one of the reasons why there was such poverty in Jerusalem, because so many of their fathers, their men, had been executed. And the women couldn't work because they were looking after their children. And therefore, as a result, it would fall to the Gentile churches to have collections, like on a weekly basis, to keep their Jewish brethren afloat. But for today, I think it's fair to say that the body of Christ is pretty much evened out. I think most Jewish messianic movements are pretty well-to-do. Most Gentile churches, most Gentile ministries are also pretty well-to-do. So I think I'm going to hold it there. This will probably run to a two- or three-part study, and I want to take my time looking at giving and what it means and what it doesn't mean. And just one final time, tithing, like 10%, like mandatory for the day is out there is no tithing system found in the new testament if you want to give fine but don't give because you think you have to give and don't think that you'll be condemned if you don't give either i've heard some awful stories of people over the years that have given quite a lot to different churches and have uh, have suffered a lot as a result and have gone without food as well because they were expected to give what they really couldn't afford to give and that is also shameful but i hold it there and next week lord willing we will pick it up from second corinthians chapter 8 verse 10 second corinthians chapter 8 and last uh, week we looked at the first nine verses and i want to read the first eight verses again to set the context to a somewhat tricky passage 8.1. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God, bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and the deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. The term for bestowed simply means to present, to award, to give. And this will be, along with chapter 9, probably the most definitive part of scripture when it comes to giving, when it comes to standing with those that are in need. Three, for to their power I bear a record, yea, and beyond their power, their wedding of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us a fellowship of the ministering to the saints. So you've got, like I said from last week, at least three churches found in Macedonia and being Greece today that were begging Paul to take their offerings and take their gifts to Jerusalem the mother church that's a context here five and this they did not as we hoped but first gave their own selves to the lord and unto us by the will of god so it's voluntary there was no compulsion there was no being forced to do this and i'll come back and discuss that shortly seven therefore as ye abound in everything in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and your love to us see that ye abound in this grace also. So, Paul wants the Corinthians to give like they would do the previous year from 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And if my dating is correct, 1 Corinthians was written probably 55 AD. 
2 Corinthians, therefore, was written probably 56 AD. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, they would put money aside and every Sunday, every Lord's Day, they would meet and what they'd put aside throughout the previous uh, six days would be presented to the elders and, of course, Paul to be taken to the mother church in Jerusalem because the mother church in Jerusalem were poor. They were persecuted. They were a trodden down people. And that's why the Gentile churches were able to come alongside and uh, take care of the Jewish churches. In fact, last night I was thinking of Jonah and I was thinking about Jonah and the Ninevites. And I was thinking about how disgusted Jonah was at preaching to the Gentiles repentance. And the Lord had to force Jonah to go to Nineveh, modern day Iraq, preach to them. And to the shock of Jonah, they got saved. They repented. And I think it's like this, that the Lord Jesus Christ looked at Peter, looked at James and John, and perhaps Andrew, his closest circle of apostles, and knew within five minutes that they couldn't preach to the Gentiles like Paul could. And that's why Paul was chosen for service. That's why Paul was sent to the Gentiles. But historically, the Jews haven't cared much for the Gentiles, and you can't miss that if you think of the Jonah account. So here you've got Gentile churches all over the Roman Empire. Poor churches, don't miss the fact that they are poor, from 8-2, and yet 8-3, 8-4, 8-5, they want to give. They want to give to their poor Jewish brethren, which I would suggest is a great lesson for those that are anti-Semitic, to take the time out and provide for their needs. 7 speaks about utterance, knowledge, diligence, and their love to the Apostle Paul, see that ye abound in this grace also. So a gentle uh, reminder concerning the previous year's generous giving. Eight, I speak not by commandments, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. So, like I said last Sunday, he could have ordered them, he was an apostle, to give, but that, of course, doesn't work. You can't order people living under the new covenant to do anything if you are living under the new covenant if you are saved you give because you want to give you don't give because you have to give you love the lord because he first loved you rules and regulations don't work i wish people could learn that i get sick and tired of watching some of these lordship salvation preachers online going around the world preaching on the streets and they preach this faith and works package and the truth be known they can't live the message that they are preaching to those that are hearing their presentation. It's a faith and works package. You can't live it. It's as simple as that. You try and live it. You try and live a perfect life. And I get sick and tired of these preachers saying that since they got saved, they no longer sin. Who are they kidding? Of course they sin. What does John say? If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So on and so forth. So don't get tossed to and fro with these lordship salvation people at the same time don't believe the lie that if you are saved you can do as you will or that the lord doesn't care he does care and he will chastise you and if he wants to he'll put you on your sick bed he'll put you on your sick bed and that's why i think a lot of saints today are sick and afflicted in different ways because they won't repent they want to do their own thing and that too is also wrong and that's why when i preach the gospel and i do these type of services every Sunday morning, I have to get the balancing act right. I don't want to be a legalist, and at the same time, I don't want to give a license to sin. It's a fine line. Nine, 
For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. I will suggest this verse, and also from chapter 9, verse 5, 6, and 7, going into verse 8 and 9, are probably the most abused verses in the scripture. Jesus was born in a cattle shed. His parents were poor peasants. Nazareth was a despised place in a despised province of a despised land. So yes, Jesus, verse 9, was rich. He would leave heaven. And yet for your sakes, our sakes, he became poor. That ye through his poverty might be rich, like the fruit of the Spirit. If you read the New Testament very carefully, you won't find anyone anywhere like from the aspect of the apostles, especially from the Jewish wing of the church, that was wealthy, like super wealthy. I don't think the Lord is against wealth per se. I don't think he's against people being comfortable. And yet Paul would say how the love of money is the root of all evil. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? I caught a documentary last night about Whitney Houston. Very interesting documentary. Whitney Houston if you didn't know, was raised in a very religious uh, church, a Baptist by uh, denomination. Her mother was an elder in this Baptist church, was part of the choir. In fact, her mother had quite a strong voice, like uh, Pavarotti's father had a very strong voice. And her mother is still alive, interestingly. And it was a very interesting documentary, a very sad documentary. It was a picture of a woman who came from a church background, Perhaps was saved, I don't know, I'll discuss that shortly. And yet she gained the whole world and perhaps lost her own soul, I don't know. At the heights of her fame, she was worth $250 million. She hired her parents, she hired her siblings, she travelled the world, she made a lot of money. Her album sold a lot. She made a couple of movies and towards the end of her life, she became very sick. And I remember listening to a statement that one of her aides made before she died, like hours before she died, how Whitney and her were reading Matthew 24. Now, I've mentioned this in the past, and this documentary last night showed a lot of rare, unseen footage. Very interesting, like I say. And there's one clip of Whitney, 1999, 2000, somewhere in Europe, about to go on stage, and she's uh, praying with her dancers. This seems to be something which other stars I've noticed over the years have done. And this film crew were able to film Whitney praying with probably 25 dancers. And they're all holding hands, eyes closed. And she's speaking about the blood of the Lamb. She's speaking about power in the name of Jesus. She's speaking about the blood of Christ. And I thought this, if I didn't know any better, I would suggest that perhaps she was a saved woman. I mean, I can't think of unsaved people doing that. I've read many autobiographies over the years and I've looked at many books concerning well-to-do people over the years. They don't speak about the blood of Christ. They don't speak about the blood of the Lamb. They don't speak about power in the name of Jesus. And this documentary shows some footage of Whitney when she was 14, 15, 16, singing one of the old great gospel songs in her church. Very powerful voice. And I thought, if she knew what would come her way, she probably would have tried to avoid going into the world of show business. As the documentary unfolded, it turned out she had two great loves in her life, her husband, Bobby Brown, and her lesbian lover. But what was really sad was this, that she was hooked on drugs, like I say, uh, narcotics, a bit like Elvis Presley, 
and she got very sick. The marriage with Brown broke down and her lesbian lover, quote unquote, went back to America. But what was really quite sad wasn't just the fact that she was a perpetual backslider. In fact, she went to Israel in, I think, 2000, 2001 with Bobby Brown to be baptized in the River Jordan. I remember watching or seeing some pictures online around the time. And I thought, I hope she gets her life back on track. I grew up listening to some of her music. I would say she was probably in the same category as Celine Dion, Barbara Streisand, and perhaps Mariah Carey. You may not know some of these singers, but if you're my age, if you're from my generation, you will know who I'm speaking about. And these stars, very powerful, Celine, Catholic, uh, Barbara, Jewish, and uh, Whitney Baptist were at the top of their game. But they went down a dark road. And for Whitney, it was very sad to see her pretty much die intoxicated with drugs, found dead face down in the bath. And I've discussed that on previous videos. But there's just a glimmer of hope, perhaps, that maybe, just maybe, she was saved. But like people with two natures, she never got control over her flesh. The same could be true of Elvis Presley. Here's a quick footnote. I caught a sermon about Elvis Presley maybe two years ago of an evangelist, now dead, who knew Elvis personally. And he put this message online. Seven reasons why Elvis Presley was saved. I don't know if that's true or not. I know when you look at these people from the outside, you think to yourself, awful, ungodly, couldn't possibly be saved. And yet, if you read Genesis, for example, and you look at the saints very carefully, you may think that perhaps they weren't saved, but they were. Two natures. But again, that's lost, I'm afraid, on most street preachers. But the context, 2 Corinthians 8-9, is about Jesus Christ, the eternal God, having everything, having angels in submission to him, having fellowship with his Father and the Spirit of the Lord, and deciding to abandon heaven, come to earth, enter the human race, and one more time, be born in a cattle shed with unclean animals. Parents were poor. Take a look sometime at Luke chapter 2, 22 to 24. Nazareth was a despised place like parts of the north of England. And he lived in a despised province in a despised land. And he did so to make you rich. Not in the sense that you become super wealthy and blow it all on lasciviousness like Whitney or excessive uh, sin like Elvis Presley but that you would produce fruit and that fruit would bless you and other people look at verse 10 please and herein I give my advice for this is expedient for you who have begun before not only to do but also to be forward a year ago so one more time you've got a group in Corinth that were going around slandering Paul trying to destroy him physically and spiritually and they were putting rumors out that Paul was in it for the money like most are today and that of course was a very painful slur and he wants them to give like they said they would give not to him but again to the churches in and around Jerusalem much poverty much pain much persecution in this term, also to be forward a year ago, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, read it sometime. They came through the first time around, and he wants them to come through one more time. It is fascinating. 
If you read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, that you've got carnal Christians, very complex Christians like you and I, who on the one hand are bickering, uh, taking people to court, like saved people, suing one another in secular courtrooms, blabbering in tongues, cursing Christ as they would blabber in tongues. One man living with his father's wife, could have been his stepmother, could have been his biological mother, who knows. I mean, just carnality everywhere. And yet, in spite of that, they came through on the money. First Corinthians 16, and here Paul wants them to give again. Not for him, one more time, but for the churches in and around Jerusalem. Look at verse 11, if you will. Now therefore perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. If you can give, give. I went to a meeting many years ago when I first got saved. And this meeting was given by an old-time evangelist. I would imagine he's probably dead now. And he spoke for 30, 35 minutes. Not a bad message, incidentally. And he did his healings, quote-unquote. And towards the end of his 50-minute meeting, the plate went round and people started to put money into the plate. I hate that kind of thing, incidentally. And after several minutes of the plate being passed around, it went to him via the elders. And there was a few minutes of prayer. And after a few moments of prayer and after him counting the money, he started to lecture those that were present. I mean, really laid the law down. And this guy was saying that meetings cost money, which, yes, is true. Uh, churches cost money to produce or to run. That's absolutely true, whether Catholic, Protestant, fundamental or evangelical. And yet his tone was completely off. He was lambasting people. He was chastising people. And he spoke about uh, a meeting he'd given some time before. And this guy being present. And from what I can remember, this man put tuppence into the plate and he thought that was appalling shameful and he may have been right but his whole demeanor his whole approach for me anyway as a brand new christian was way over the top and i thought people are going to come away from that meeting thinking that he's only in it for the money he just wants the money now if you've got saved people that break bread every week and you all know each other okay fine you can speak frankly you know you can speak candidly you can speak your mind, that's fine. But if you've got unsaved people that are breezing in or that are there for the first time, hearing this type of a guy lecturing and reprimanding people for not giving more generously, it's shameful, it's embarrassing. It goes back to Paul saying in First Corinthians that if you're all speaking in tongues and some unsaved guy breezes in and he sees you all speaking in tongues, he will think you are mad. But if you're all prophesying, like thus saith the Lord, or praise the Lord our God, singing the old psalms and the old gospel songs like Whitney grew up singing, and Aretha Franklin and Diane Warwick grew up singing, all related incidentally, then you may say the Lord is in such a place, and fall flat on your face and worship the Lord. But people blabbering in tongues, like learned behavior, or perhaps devil possession is shameful it doesn't please the lord it's the flesh and i would suggest it dishonors the lord but to watch this elderly gentleman must be dead now like i say 
standing on his feet for 10, 15 minutes, wagging his finger in people's faces and just rebuking those present for not giving more was shameful. I won't speak any more about him. I had some other altercations with him, shall we say, which I won't speak about this morning. Look at verse 12, please. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. Don't put yourself into debt to give a donation. What Paul doesn't want to happen are those in Corinth to stretch themselves, go without a meal or two. I received an email maybe a year ago or so from a particular party who had been to many churches, and this party had some children, and from memory, the email went along the lines of, number one, is it still mandatory to tithe, like at least 10% today? And the answer, of course, is no. Number two, if we don't tithe, are we cursed? And of course, the answer is no. And number three, am I a bad Christian for not tithing? And again, the answer is no. And it turned out this person that emailed me had been uh, to certain churches where the tithe, the uh, tithe lie was really pushed. And if you didn't give, you were cursed. And she told me in her email that she was a single parent and she struggled to put food on the table because what money she had went to the church. She was tithing to a church system. And I thought, how sad, how very, very sad. I was told one story from a particular party who was a volunteer at a Calvinist church. And this volunteer at a Calvinist church would offer, I think, maybe two, three days a week free for the uh, admin side of this Calvinist church. Every church needs administrators. And this save party would work or would offer their time free, three days a week, and did so for a period of time. And then to their shock, one day the pastor's son arrived into the office and was doing the same as what this person was doing, but the difference was he was getting paid. And this person wasn't getting paid. And on top of that, the deacon at that church, up in years, in his, I think, early 70s, was also getting a salary. And this party had put time aside, like I say, because they were saved, they are saved, wanted to do something, didn't know any better, and had no idea that behind the scenes, such a place was bringing in a lot of money, and the pastor was getting a good salary. In fact, he was the most paid person in the church. How about that? He had more money than he needed, and therefore he was able to give money to his son and his wife and also the deacon, who I think may have been a relative. It's a family affair. That's not what would take place back in the first century. One more time, if you know church history, you know that the one-man ministry didn't really begin until the second, the third, the fourth century. The first century, such a thing wasn't known. Yes, you had evangelists that went out full-time, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, but those evangelists had the sign gifts as well. And that's why they were entitled, like Paul, like Peter, like Stephen and Philip, to be supported financially via their local congregations. We haven't got that today. If you think of an evangelist today, a typical evangelist today goes from church to church. He doesn't do street work. He doesn't stand on street corners preaching the gospel. He goes from church to church selling his DVDs, selling his CDs, selling his books. That's not what an evangelist is. Twelve again. For if there be first a willing mind, free will, willing mind, you're not going to be coerced into doing this. 
It is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. I remember, I think it was probably five or six years ago, watching Robert Schuller Jr. No, it was Robert Schuller Sr. on television at his Crystal Cathedral in uh, California, Orange County from memory. An old Schuller Sr., the old apostate, the old sellout, had charisma, unlike his son, unlike his grandson. And I watched Schuller Sr. on television, like I say, preaching the prosperity message. And I thought this, I thought he's been able to make hundreds of millions of dollars over the years due to compulsion, manipulation, and intimidation. Going back to that woman's email, I feel like I am a bad Christian. I feel like I am shortchanging the Lord. I feel like I am dishonoring the Lord. Am I an awful person? And I said no. And yet to sit down with someone like Shula Senior, in his mind, he would be convinced that God has blessed him. But that's not true. I don't think God blessed him for five minutes. I think he was able to build that massive cathedral, California, like I say, Orange County for memory, not due to the Lord's blessing, but one more time due to compulsion, manipulation, and intimidation. That's what I believe. And that's why it grieves me when I occasionally go across or come across religious people online. It's one thing to give because you can. It's something completely different to give because you feel you have to. Or you feel like if you don't give, the Lord will just condemn you. Shameful. Not to mention embarrassing. Because the world see this. Unsaved people see this. And they use this to criticize us. They use this to attack us. If you speak to most unsaved people about being born again. They think of televangelists. Or they think of people like Billy Graham. Or Jerry Falwell. Or Pat Robertson. And they say to themselves. Maybe this particular chap. Or maybe those that do street work in the UK are like those awful people that I just mentioned. And we get a bad name because of such people. 13. For I mean not that other men be eased and ye burdened, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be equality, as it is written, he that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack, as it is written. Exodus chapter 16. He that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack. Concerning the fact that, number one, the Lord will always give you what you need. He won't give you more than you need, and he won't give you less than you need. And this is from Exodus chapter 16, verse 18. But 14 speaks about equality, like balance. Sometimes people want to overgive. They want to overgive to impress their peers. They want to keep up, like I say, with the Joneses and the Smiths. And for them, it's a great privilege to give and give deep. And you hear equality meaning balance. Also, if you do give, don't broadcast what you are giving to the world, because according to Matthew chapter 6, if you broadcast to the world, you've had your reward. If you give, praise the Lord. Don't broadcast it. And if you don't give, that's fine as well. This is not a salvation issue. 
But 13, 14, 15, make the case that the Lord will bless you, of course, if you're able to give something. And if you can't give something, that's fine as well. But one more time, the tithing lie, the tithing aspect for the new covenant is out. The tithing system that you read about in scripture was first and foremost Israel's national taxation system. Israel was a nation. Israel had a temple. Israel had priests. Israel was a people. Today we are the people of God. Today we are the church. Our bodies are the temple of the Lord and we are a spiritual priesthood. So I don't know how people can honestly read the scripture and come to the conclusion that tithing like at least 10% is for today. It's not. And I would suggest it's a terrible uh, abuse of the scripture. But if you do give, it will result, number one, in material blessings, spiritual blessings, and eternal blessings and rewards. You can't get around that. What did uh, Jesus say? It's always better to give than to receive. Of course, if you give, you feel good for giving. If you don't give, sometimes you feel stingy. You feel tight. You feel like you're not giving something back. And I've heard sermons from different people over the years. And they've always, well, there's always been a consensus that in any church, in any part of the world, concerning any denomination, it always seems to fall to the same old gang, SOG, as it's been dubbed, and you have a tiny minority in every church, in every ministry, that give the most. The rest just take. They turn up week in, week out. They listen to the pastor, or they are part of the service, or they download the sermons, watch the videos, never give a penny back, never give a love offering, never give anything. They just take, take, take. That also can be problematic, and I would suggest would result in Say people missing out on a blessing, missing out on a reward or two, and also missing out on being a part of something which is far greater than the here and now. So I will close it there. And like I said last week, this will be a probably a three-part message looking at giving, looking at what it means to live under grace, under the new covenant, to give or not to give. And if you give, it's up to you. There's no mandatory 10%. There's no chastisements if you don't give. And if you do give, yes, of course, you will feel better within yourself. You may be able to bless others and allow others to bless others as well. I mean, we are a body of Christ. We are family. Paul says that uh, if one part of our body suffers, we all suffer. And he starts off with a physical analogy, like if you stump your toe first thing in the morning, it hurts. The whole body uh, shudders with pain, you know, recoils due to stubbing your toe but the same is true in a spiritual sense if you come across say people that are suffering it can pain you it can sadden you and you feel like you want to do something you feel like you want to stand with such people and sometimes people are able to do so other times they're not but for me the greatest picture probably in the new testament of giving would be from uh, mark 12 41 to 44 concerning the elderly woman at uh, the temple, and Christ would see her casting all that she had. She wouldn't broadcast it. She probably did it at night time when nobody was around, and she probably did it when nobody was looking. It was a private thing, you see. 
not to be broadcasted, not to be done to cause uh, people to think how highly or how wonderful she was. And we will pick up this theme next week from uh, verse 16 from Second uh, Corinthians chapter 8. Look at verse 9 again, please, from Second Corinthians chapter 8. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Verse 2 again from chapter 8. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. So the context, one more time, is concerning poverty, great poverty. The early church were poor, very poor. And you might say, well, that's probably because the Corinthians were carnal, good for nothing layabouts, didn't do a day's work, didn't know much about grafting and so on and so forth. Well, don't be so quick to judge. Go to First Corinthians uh, chapter 4, First Corinthians chapter 4, and look, if you will, please, at verse 11. Until this present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and are naked, and are buffeted, and have no certain dwelling place, and labour working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as a filth of the world, and are the offscoring of all things unto this day. That is the Apostle Paul speaking. Not some layabout, not some spineless, good-for-nothing, backsliding individual. That is the Apostle Paul. Even unto this present hour, verse 11, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. The Apostle Paul was, on the one hand, a professional. He had his own uh, trade. And yet, on the other hand, here, around 55 AD or thereabouts, he's telling you, what it was like to be in his shoes. What would uh, Jesus say? The Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. It speaks about a group of women from uh, Luke 8, from memory, who supported him financially. So, no matter how you approach this touchy subject of tithing, which, one more time, isn't for today, and yet churches do cost money to run, ministries cost money to run, no matter how you approach this somewhat uh, tricky subject, when you look at Paul, if you profile Paul, or if you profile the Lord Jesus Christ, they had almost nothing. Compare that to someone like uh, Oral Roberts. Roberts made the case that he needed, I think it was $12 million, and he was crying, and he was begging his audience to step forward and provide him with $11 million. And you know what? He got the money. Not for the sake of the mission fields overseas, but in reference to his own ministry. I remember hearing a story uh, some years ago concerning a Catholic priest who joined our old church. And go back to Second Corinthians, please, chapter 8. And within a short period of arriving, he said to the canon, by the way, Father, and they call each other Father in a Catholic church, he said, by the way, Father, I haven't got a car. I've just come from such and such a parish. I am new to the country. He'd come from overseas, incidentally. And the canon said to this uh, priest, okay, Father, such and such, I will loan you several thousand pounds. Not him, of course, but the parish would loan him several thousand pounds. And I want you to pay a bit back each week. So he agreed to that. And after less than a couple of months, he had purchased a nice new car. 
thanks to this pretty poor parish, incidentally. And to his surprise, he was transferred to another church. Within three months, he'd gone from church one to church two to church three. I'll tell you something, as a quick footnote. The bishops in a Catholic church are the real power brokers. If you are a typical Catholic in a typical church anywhere in the world, you have no say, absolutely no say, as to who runs your church, as to how the money is spent in your church. You have no say whatsoever. And this foreign priest from Europe was transferred to this third church. And you know what? Never paid a penny back. And he got away with a nice brand new car, thanks to a very poor parish, incidentally. And that is the type, is that, that is the type of abuse which I think is prevalent. It's not just found in evangelical circles. It's found in Catholic circles and even Protestant circles. But we are looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 one more time, please. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. So speak to any charismatic, speak to any Pentecostal, speak to any middle class Christian of any denomination on the face of the earth and they will say this that Christ uh, became poor basis first so you could become rich like financially go to Proverbs chapter 8 keep your hand in 2nd Corinthians 8 I sometimes scratch my head when I look at churches today and ask myself this how can churches today relate in any way to the Apostle Paul or the Lord Proverbs chapter 8 proverbs chapter 8 look at 17 please i love them that love me and those that seek me early shall find me that of course is timeless if you can get saved at the soonest possible moment you really should do so i heard of one statistic a while ago which said this that if a person isn't saved by the age of 13 i seem to recall there is a 97 percent chance 97% chance that such a person will never get saved. I love them that love me. That's good news. And those that seek me early shall find me. Don't put off tomorrow what you can do today. 18. Riches and honour are with me. Yea, durable riches and righteousness. That's a context to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. What would Christ say from the Gospel of Matthew? Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and then... So these riches be added unto you. Get under the blood, of course. 19. My fruit is better than gold, yea, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. Clearly in reference to the fruits of the Spirit. Almighty God takes a dead person and makes such alive. 20. I lead in the way of righteousness, in the midst of the paths of judgment, that I may cause those that love me to inherit substance and i will fill their treasures go back to second corinthians chapter eight so jesus christ was rich very rich yes of course he's the creator of the universe and yet became poor and entered the human race was born in another's barn died on another's cross and was buried in another's tomb people say they follow the lord people say they are pauline christians And yet, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and think about those verses, 11, 12, 13, ask yourself this. Can you relate to the Apostle Paul? Can you relate to the Lord Jesus Christ? I would suggest that most Christians, most men in the ministry, 
in Britain, America and Canada are living very comfortably. Gated communities, driven around in chauffeur-driven cars, rarely, if ever, come into contact with the world. I remember listening to one sermon by a fundamentalist Baptist, and he said this, he said that, if the truth be known, I am out of touch with most of my parishioners. And I thought, what an honest statement to make. He said this, he said, I have a nice house, I have a nice garden, I have more money than I need, I don't live in some council estate, I don't get the bus from here to there, I live very comfortably. Contrast that to people in my church. And I thought, what an honest statement to make. Most people wouldn't make that kind of a statement. People like Oral Roberts wouldn't make that kind of a statement. People like Joe Olstein wouldn't make that kind of a statement. They want to give the impression that they can relate to everyday people. I caught a documentary not very long ago about one of Britain's most successful charities, secular charity, and they allowed this film crew to follow their CEO around for a few weeks. And I was struck, number one, at his huge house in Buckinghamshire. Five bedrooms, four or five cars. And I thought this, people that give to this particular charity would be quite shocked to see how the CEO lives. In fact, when I was back at school, I did some voluntary work for this charity in my town. And I wasn't more than 15 years old. And I remember speaking to an elderly gentleman who was also volunteering at this place. And I really enjoyed myself for a few weeks working at this very well-known charity in Britain, which, if I was to mention, you would know straight away. In fact, they are represented all over the world. But I thought this, if people knew that what they were giving to this uh, charity was first of all going towards the upkeep, of such a charity, like paying their CEO like a six-figure salary. Contrast that to most volunteers who work for nothing, or if they do any kind of full-time work, are paid the minimum wage, would be shocked. In fact, I discovered quite recently that if you get stopped on a street corner by a so-called chugger, and you agree to donate, say, £10 a month to such a secular charity, around a quarter of that goes towards the costs of that charity salaries overheads and most people aren't aware of that most people think that what they give goes completely to the third world countries which these this particular charity is working uh you know working towards to support just a few days ago i was looking online to buy some uh, gospel of john's for our future outreach and i found a ministry in london which are selling the gospel of john and i was struck at how cheap they were charging for the Gospel of John. And I thought that's how it should be. A Christian charity, very well-known charity. In fact, it's probably more bordering a ministry. And they are offering the Gospel of John. Dirt cheap. And I thought this. I would be prepared to pay double what they are selling it for. If not triple to what they are selling it for. We know that ministry costs money. We know that money doesn't grow on trees. Of course not. But... If you think of the abuses that have gone on over recent years, and if you think of people that like to stop you on the streets and throw this in your face and use such as an alibi not to get saved, it makes me sick. People say this, they say, look at the Catholic Church, look at the Vatican, they say, look at the Pope, look at the Cardinals, look at the Archbishops all over the world living in palaces. And you say, yes, absolutely right. And they say they should sell such places 
and give to the poor? And you say, yes, I completely concur. And then turn around and say, but how about these Protestant leaders, these evangelical leaders, these televangelists? And we have to say, yes, they should also be doing the same. But of course, they won't do the same because they are used to the good life. But let's keep reading on. Second Corinthians chapter eight, second Corinthians chapter eight. Look at 16, please. But thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. Titus is mentioned many times in uh, Second Corinthians. And a few days ago, I sat down to uh, work my way through Proverbs. And I'm also working my way through Psalms at the moment, preparing some uh, future messages for a future outreach. And I came across Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And I thought, yes, that is very much in reference to Titus, Paul's left-hand man. John was Christ's left-hand man. People think that Peter was the closest to Christ. No, I think it was John. John would lean on the Lord's breast. John was told that Judas would betray Jesus, Peter was late uh, onto the scene, if you will. Peter wasn't briefed, like first of all, straight away. In fact, the last chapter of John's gospel, Peter is asking John to ask Jesus what's going on concerning his future welfare. Peter wasn't the closest of the Lord's apostles. But Titus, verse 16, has been commended again, and it's always a blessing if you are a brother to be commended. Sometimes uh, people shy away from being commended. Sometimes people play down their importance. I'll tell you something. If I have ever helped anyone and they want to thank me for it, praise the Lord. If people come up to me in the streets and they do sometimes and they shake my hand or they say, God bless you or the same to Patrick, I say thank you very much. I'll take a blessing from anyone, anywhere, at any time. 17. For indeed he accepted the exhortation, but being more forward of his own accord, he went unto you. So, one more time, you've got a group in Corinth, at least one demon-possessed character, slandering the Apostle Paul, wanting to do the Apostle Paul a lot of harm, and the Corinthians were being tossed to and fro. On the one hand, they didn't want to believe that Paul was a charlatan, like Roberts, like Olstein, like any other colourful character you care to think about. And yet, on the other hand, they knew perfectly well that Paul got them saved. Paul went to their homes, would dine with them, would come alongside them, would even make his living, for the most part, as a tent maker. But this is the power of the tongue. The tongue can do a lot of damage. And sometimes people like to gossip about other people, and they like to smear other people. And many times it's down to jealousy. I'm convinced that one of the reasons why so many Christians online post videos against each other or write articles against one another is simply down to jealousy. It's down to the fact that this particular brother has a greater following than this particular brother. And people don't like it. It's the old nature, you see. But Titus sixteen seventeen has been commended and he wants to reassure the Corinthians that Paul has forgiven them and he wants to relate to Paul that they are now back on script if you will they are now back 
in the fold. 18. And we have sent with him the brother, whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not that only, but who was also chosen of the churches to travel with us with this grace, which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord, and declaration of your ready mind. Avoid this, that no man should blame us in this abundance which is administered by us, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sights of men. So again, transparency is always preferred, and yet be mindful of this, that every ministry is autonomous. A ministry or a minister answers first of all to the Lord, but Paul is having to deal with this character, like I say, who was trying to undermine him, who was trying to put doubts in the minds of the Corinthians, which, had he succeeded, it would have resulted in many people in Greece just falling away, just saying, you know what, Paul is like all of the other charlatans that we all know. And of course, that is what the devil will do. If you are successful, if you are making any difference for the Lord, on a regular basis, expect the devil to be all over you like a rash. It could be sleep deprivation. It could be an infection. It could be a virus. It could be noisy neighbors. It could be a poor diet. It could be a hundred and one things. I'll tell you something. When all those things come together at once, you are just flat on your back. You just want to roll up and go to sleep. And that's when the devil is won. I'll tell you something. Discouragement is a major problem. Disillusionment is a major problem. I caught a clip a few days ago of a street preacher in America, one of the good ones, I should say, and he made this video, and right at the end of this 15-minute video, he was speaking to camera, and he was very disillusioned, discouraged with the way of the world, and I thought to myself, is he going to throw in the towel? It would appear that he was on the brink of throwing in the towel, like, never again will I work the streets in my city, in my country. Well, a few days later, he posted a new video and he seems to be back on board. But that was, again, an honest brother making an honest statement about how he felt. This guy does street work. He's up in years. And like most people, he was sick and tired of being tossed to and fro, being cursed at, being spat at, being abused verbally and perhaps physically. And he wanted to just throw in the towel but by the grace of God, he didn't. He carried on. And I think Paul would very much be able to relate to him. Providing, verse 21, honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. First Timothy, I think it's chapter 3 or 4, from memory, speaks about an elder of a local church being known in his community. But I wonder how many people in Texas know Joe Olstein personally. I wonder how many people in uh, California know John MacArthur personally. I wonder how many people in New York knew David Wilkerson personally. It seems to me that most of these churches are only interested in themselves. They meet sometimes thrice a week, break bread, have a reading, have a prayer meeting, and the rest of the week is their own. Such people, I don't believe, are known in their communities. Because such people don't go into the streets in their communities. Unlike Paul, who would travel around, jump on a boat, go here, go there, would be shipwrecked many times, would be whipped many times, would be hungry, naked, buffeted. I mean, 
if you are a dispensationalist, if you call yourself a Pauline believer, if you offer yourself as a dispensationalist, and I do, incidentally, although I'm a semi-dispensationalist, ask yourself this. Can you relate to Paul? I'm speaking to men now. I'm speaking to brothers now. I'm speaking to those in the ministry. Can you relate to Paul? Can you relate to Jesus Christ? Or are you very comfortable? Are you cocooned? Are you sheltered? I was told a story about a church, a reformed church. And the pastor got up one Sunday for several Sundays. And he said this. He said, how can it be possible that just around the corner from our wonderful church, there is a Mormon temple and the Mormons have been able to raise millions to build their temple. And yet we are the true church and every church thinks they are the true church which of course is a joke. There is no true church. If you are in the body of Christ, you're saved. And this pastor, week in, week out, got up and went on and on and on about the need for this reformed church, this Calvinist church, to dig deep, or as they say, uh, give until it hurts. And people were made to feel bad. And after many weeks of this pastor getting up and begging his church to give, the money came through. And they built this massive church not far from this Mormon temple. And the pastor said, there you are, you see, the Lord has answered our prayers. No, no, he didn't answer your prayers. That pastor was able to get that money through compulsion, manipulation and intimidation. Going back to the Schuller incident, going back to my wonderful cathedral, almighty God has blessed me. No, no, he didn't bless you. He wasn't involved in Schuller's church for five minutes. Just because you have a big church, just because you have a big gathering of people, doesn't mean anything. Go back to Acts chapter 1. Read it sometime. It says that there were around 120 people in the upper room. Not in some cathedral, but 120, not 120,000. 120. The Lord's people have always done things in a small way. The Lord's people have always lived very simply. What would Paul say? Let your moderation be known among all people. 22, please. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you. Paul knew they would come through, not for him, one more time. They would come through for the poor women in Jerusalem, for the orphans in Jerusalem, for the sick and disabled in Jerusalem. This collection wasn't to pay Paul. This collection wasn't to pay Titus. This collection wasn't to pay Timothy. This collection was to go back to Jerusalem, the mother church, because those Jews that came to Jesus suffered a great level of suffering uh, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And it could also be that they were poor before they came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you are poor, if you are financially suffering, and you think that perhaps you are cursed by the Lord, think again. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I think it is from memory, Paul castigates those carnal Christians for arriving at the uh, Lord's service drunk, and he, mentioned, he mentions uh, some Christians who are homeless. And it says that, you know, if you want to eat and drink before the Lord's Day service, do so. But don't arrive at the Lord's Day table or the Lord, uh, during the Lord's Day service intoxicated. 
you are a disgrace to yourself and you are a disgrace you are a disgrace to those that haven't got anywhere to live which shows me once again that there was a lot of poverty in the early church like 82 deep poverty 1 Corinthians 11 homeless christians and then paul 1 Corinthians 4 11 12 13 homeless buffeted naked on the brink perhaps of starvation and yet can any preacher today really relate to what it was like back in the first century 23 please whether any do inquire of titus here's my partner and fellow helper concerning you or our brethren be inquired of they are the messengers of the churches and the glory of christ there was a structure in place back in the first century it speaks about the church sending paul from a to b it speaks about the church in jerusalem sending a couple of brothers uh, to go with paul back to the gentile areas of the church there was a structure in place and i think that structure was beneficial for many reasons number one because they were still receiving revelations from the lord today we go to the scripture for revelation or revelations we don't need to go to a church to be told what the lord thinks about anything but for the first century if you wanted to know anything you would have to sit symbolically at the feet or figuratively i should say at the feet of the apostles because they were receiving revelations from the lord also let me repeat myself from last sunday because the apostles were around visibly because the apostles were eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, because the apostles were a chosen group of saved Jews, the churches, whether Gentile or Jewish, could trust them. They knew that uh, Peter was legit, that John was legit, that Paul was legit. And yet, unfortunately, like I say, you've got this group that were going around attacking Paul, trying to pull him down and of course that is what i think chapter eight and nine is about paul responding paul having to reaffirm his credentials at the same time titus has relayed back to paul that all is good that this mutiny perhaps this infighting has been dealt with 24 and i'll close wherefore show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf you promised me first corinthians 16 that you would put money aside and when i arrived you give it to me and some brothers to go back to jerusalem and here paul is reminding such people once again to do what is necessary because a promise had been made in fact i think it was back in 2010 there was a major earthquake in haiti and uh, a lot of people got together to raise money for that catastrophe and i seem to remember a former american president going on television trying to raise millions and i think it was last year or the year before last only 40 percent of what had been offered had been given 60 percent was never given and that goes back to some of these telethons that goes back to churches that offer to give X amount of money to a mission or a ministry. And they don't come through. And ministries, they plan ahead 
like if you have a radio ministry, you plan ahead and you think to yourself, well, such and such has offered to give X amount. We can purchase X amount of airtime. And you start to make plans and then such and such a person changes their mind. They back out for whatever the reason. And you are left just high and dry. If you promise something, come through on the money. If you promise the Lord to do something, honour what you say. You are still bound by your oaths. This church I spoke about a few moments ago promised their pastor that they would give and give deep. And they honoured that commitment. Rightly or wrongly, they honoured their commitments. The same be true of uh, Shuler's crowd. They promised to give a lot of money to create his cathedral, and it was built. I caught a debate on uh, YouTube a few weeks ago concerning uh, Ken Ham's massive uh, Noah's Ark in uh, Kentucky, in America, and I was somewhat surprised that it cost $100 million. And you ask yourself this, is that money well spent? I mean, $100 million. How many Bibles could you buy with that kind of money? How many missionaries could you send overseas with that kind of money? How much airtime could you buy with that kind of money? How much television time? How many tracks could you purchase with that kind of money? See, the world look at someone like Ham, and they will critique such a decision. They know that is not overly right. And they will use that, again, as an alibi not to get saved. And they will say, well, the Pope lives like a king. The Pope lives like an emperor. And I think some of these brothers, well-intended, no doubt, people like Ham and others, and yet I just wonder sometimes if that is money well spent. But that goes back one more time to the judgment seats of the Lord. So I'm not going to spend time this morning lambasting or rebuking or castigating someone like Ham for doing that. I'm not his judge. It's not down to me to zoom in on his ministry, no more than he can zoom in on my ministry. But what I can do is observe what takes place openly. I think every ministry is entitled to take a look at other ministries, like every church. But when it comes to scrutiny, again, churches, ministries are autonomous. So he doesn't answer to me. I don't answer to him. But if you ask my opinion as to whether or not I think $100 million towards the cost of an ark is money well spent, I would say probably not. It's like some of these preachers that give the altar calls. And they've got the old piano going. And the uh, preacher is running around saying, come to Jesus, believe on him. The rapture could be imminent. The second coming could be imminent. We've got hurricanes, we've got volcanoes, we've got typhoons, we've got this, we've got that. The whole world is spinning to disaster, get saved now, and they're almost begging people to come to be saved. I don't care for that kind of language. I don't find the Apostle Paul begging people, using a piano or music to get people saved. I don't find Jesus Christ running around trying to get people to repent. But again, who am I to judge? Such people's tactics. They will give an account at the judgment seat of Christ. I will give an account at the judgment seat of Christ. You too will give an account at the judgment seat of Christ. And one final 
comments I mentioned last Sunday. Whitney Houston. I want to return to her one more time. She could, just perhaps, be a save woman. And I base that on interview footage, which was shown in that documentary, which I caught last week. And she came from a very religious background. And yet was carnal, very carnal, was into alcohol, was into drug abuse, died prematurely. I mean, she wasn't even 50 when she died. But what really struck me the most about her demise was that within a short time of her death, her husband remarried, had children with his second wife. Her lover, quote unquote, went off with somebody else and has children with somebody else. And I thought this, how quickly is she forgotten? Her daughter died two years ago of a drug overdose. Talk about a cursed family. Talk about bad blood. Was she saved? Perhaps. But someone like her would look at 8-9, and her followers would look at 8-9, and say that Jesus Christ died to make her rich. Yes, she was very rich. But the scripture says, what does it profit a man or woman if he or she should gain the world like Whitney and lose their own soul? I don't know if she lost her own soul. I don't know. But I know this, that listening to her and watching her during this documentary, I thought perhaps, just perhaps, she was saved. And perhaps she got into her flesh, which is so powerful. And she wasn't able to get out of the snare of the devil. And I've spoken over the years of people like Brainard, who was a saved Calvinist. Yes, Calvinists can be saved. And yet he was tossed to and fro. And he would lament his old nature. He would want to curl up and die. He would think he wasn't even saved. He would doubt the existence of God. He was a really tortured soul. And yet, if you read his diary, and I have done, there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever that Brainard was saved, and perhaps Whitney was saved as well, I don't know. But what you don't want to do is look at someone like her and follow her example and think, you know, if that's what the world can offer, I don't want it. Paul, on the other hand, lived a very simple life. Jesus, on the other hand, lived a very simple life. All of the greats in the New Testament especially lived very simple, very humble lives. So I will close it there. I think we've had enough for the last three Sundays looking at giving, tithing, Giving because you want to give, not giving because you have to give. Giving because it's voluntary, not compulsory. And again, tithing for uh, the Old Testament was Israel's national taxation system. Israel was a nation. We are not a nation per se today. The Jews had literal temple. We are the temple of God. The Jews had literal priests. We are priests of the Lord. The Jews had animal sacrifices we are to present our own bodies as a sacrifice to the lord if you want to give you can give but there's no 10 percent. there's no mandatory 10 percent. you won't be cursed if you don't give 10 percent. and if you give 10 percent, that's up to you but don't think that somehow you are pleasing the lord or don't think that perhaps the lord is going to commend you one day like that church that raised millions to compete with the uh, with the mormons when that money could have gone to the purchase of Bibles, tracts, missionaries being sent overseas. Don't think someone like uh, Or Roberts will be commended or his uh, audience for sending him $12 million 
What's there to show for it now? Nothing. Don't think if you stand with someone like Joe Olstein, who can pack his auditorium three, four times over every Lord's Day service, that somehow he will be commended or congratulated by the Lord, or that you'll be congratulated or commended by the Lord. People should give because they can give. And on top of that, and I will say this in close, if you give, don't broadcast it. Don't broadcast what you are giving. Never let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. And give because you can give if you want to give, and do so because you love the Lord. Don't expect anything in return. And I will close next week, pick it up from Second Corinthians chapter 9.